Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Jew and Gentile podcast. We're back, Steve. We are back better than ever. We're back, baby. Uh, Steve is back in the podcast room. Just about ready to fall asleep. <laughs> Steve returned from Israel. How long ago? A couple days ago? On uh, Monday, yep. Monday you, Eastern Time, at the plane landed at 5, and I was in bed by 7.30. You do a pretty good job of traveling. You're a pro at it. Yeah, so. well, you know, I'm getting old, though. It's getting tough. Well, we were joking. Laura and I, uh, your um, administrative assistant, were joking that you slowing down is just the normal man's, you know, I think you took one day off, and then you were back in the studio right away. Here we go. All right, well, welcome in, everybody, for our uh, uh, most recent uh, Jew and Gentile podcast. I'm thankful that you're here. This is actually... Uh, Steve, we're counting them, but this is episode 30. 30. We, st- we started in September, didn't we? We started in September, um, give or and take. And we haven't missed a week. We haven't missed a week, and I actually, the reason we're at, at 29, but at 30 is because last week while you were in Israel, I did a little special podcast with um, uh, with our guest, who's the archaeologist, uh, who found um, uh, the, the e-ball curse tablet. Um, and she was a part of the dig, but she has a connection with friends of Israel. Yeah, she was on our origins trip. Exactly, she did a phenomenal job. Why don't you tell Ab- the folks about origins? I think it's a it's a tremendous outreach. Yeah, uh, it's uh, well. First, her name's Abigail Levitt, um, and she went on either our first or second origins trip. Um, that was in either 2007 or 2008. But it's our um, it's at uh, origins is our young adult. Um, uh, outreach uh, ministry. It's an acrostic. Right. An acrostic, that means our resolve is giving Israel never-ending support. And when we go to Israel with these young adults, we take about 18 or so young adults, and um, we serve. Uh, for many years, we served at a hospital doing various menial tasks, but with a smile on our face. Um, and uh, while we were there, actually, doing the, the, the volunteer work, um, for the Israelis, uh, we did a little archaeological project. Everybody's got to get dirty when you go to Israel. You got to get your hands in. Exactly. And if you've never been before, you just got to kick some dirt around. And there's a pottery shard from thousands of years ago. And I'm not. I'm not even exaggerating. No. In fact, in some places, you don't even have to dig. It's still laying there at the top. We saw them. I just got back, as you said, and there were places we actually the uh, our guide Tito pointed out. Oh, those are yeah, those are old pieces of potsherd. What? Wait a minute, they're just <laughs> laying around. We're, it's amazing. They use them for uh, for uh, walkways sometimes, yeah. you know, like crushed gravel or something. Yeah, like yeah. they just line and there's so much pottery shard. But anyway, we did this really unique um, archaeo- archaeological dig once where the Palestinians. They had dug up a lot of dirt from the Temple Mount in order to make a exit from the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which was not approved by the Israeli Antiquities Department. And so in the covert darkness of night, they dumped all of this rubble, Steve, just rubble, rubble into the Kidron Valley. And the Israelis saw what they were doing, and all of these archaeologists were thinking, this, is, this dirt was dumped like any other dirt pile, but in that dirt is archaeological they finds. have found all they found coins they found uh clay pots mm-hmm. they found it's what it is chris is further proof there was a jewish presence there there was a lot i mean even to the, the i think they found something from when napoleon walked on the temple mount they found maybe some guy rustled his pockets and a coin you know fell through the cracks and went into the dirt they just found so many things that date back even to the first temple period, uh, all that rubble that they had moved around. Um, and so Abigail Levitt did her first archaeological dig with us 
um, just happened to be what God's timing. And I could, I, I, as I said in the podcast last week, which you can go back and listen to, I saw it in her eye, Steve. There are some people, they don't have the patience for archaeology. It sounds I'm like I'm one of them. I'm one of them. Sitting there in the dirt looking for stuff that you might not find is not my cup of tea, but I'm really glad for Abigail. Yeah, so some people, like you said, they kind of like after a couple of minutes are like, all right, move on. Abigail, I could see she was locked in, and I th- she even reminded me. She said uh, um, last week, Chris, I think I even asked, can I just stay here, please? I said, no, you have to come home with us. But uh, now she's getting her Ph.D. from REL University in in Israel, and um, she was a part of this big find. Uh, but anyway, that's what we talked about last week while Steve was in Israel. But now we're back, Steve. We are back. We are back, and Chris, uh, we're actually in our podcast room. And uh, those who are watching on YouTube might be able to see the posters you put up actually came from your office. I see Jerusalem, Haifa, Tel Aviv, Tiberias. It makes me want to go back already. And uh, there's a little sticker of Ben-Gurion on your right-hand shoulder. Yeah, let me see Uh, if I can get that. Oh, that's a great sticker. Love that sticker. This guy right here, you see if you're watching on uh, YouTube, you can see Ben-Gurion. I've got some good stuff. We we get that uh, from a really special website that I know Alice, your wife, and I like to visit regularly this website called pieces of history and they've pieces got pieces of history they're like on first name basis with my wife <laughs> but they have a lot of great israeli history stuff modern israeli history um but we'll, we'll plug them again some In other fact, time maybe they can you see behind me is the camera on oh you know see, let me switch see over the little people yep you can see the people yeah. why don't you pick one up steve and show people you know okay. i know if you're listening on the podcast it's kind of a pointless endeavor steve why don't you put it in the camera right here of course i want to hold up herzl that's herzl right looks great uh, and if you notice, I don't know if the camera could pick it up, all the people that we have behind me are dead people. That This company, Pieces of History, is not interested in any Israeli that's alive. These are all people who have contributed mightily to the history of Israel. Herzl, of course, uh, one of the main guys. You know, Steve, you and I have talked about this. We need to do a, a couple weeks, I think, at some point in the future on the history of some of these uh, uh, amazing men and women who were a part of the founding of the modern state of Israel, because when you kind of build a history around them, then you can get a better understanding of the history of Israel altogether. Up oh, there she well, is. Who will f- would forget Golda? Nope, you can't Golda. forget Golda Meir. She's great, and uh, you're right. You're right. We we do have to do it. In fact, um, I have um, a slideshow that I use for uh, some Sunday schools that I do, and a- actually ask them to take. The Israel test. I've done it in my own office as well. Uh, There was a person who minored in Jewish studies. Oh, minored in Jewish studies. That's great. I said, you'll really do well on this test. Flunked. (laughs) You've had some serious FOI, um, you know, men and women that have come through who know their stuff. They know their stuff. And they came through and you said, who's this? I don't know. (laughs) That's the way it is. It's good. Listen, uh, yeah, we'll do that sometime. That's something on the docket for content uh, that we want to share with you, some of modern Israeli history. Um, Today, uh, though, on the podcast, uh, we've actually thought, you know, what's coming up soon is Passover. Um, Resurrection Day and Passover are coming up very soon, next week, in fact. Um, and so uh, we thought we would talk about a important aspect to the Passover, which is the four cups of the Passover. We're going to talk about that today. 
Uh, in fact, Steve and I, we just wrapped up filming our Passover online that you can be a part of. You can watch it online. It will air uh, next week, Thursday, April 14th. If you'd like to register to be a part of that Passover, all you have to do is go to FOI, as in Friends of Israel, foi.org forward slash Passover. And not only are you going to be able to register and watch Steve and I and our two friends, Mary and Carrie, go through the Passover together, but you're also going to be able to download all of the required materials to lead a Passover yourself with your family. Well, I really think that if folks want to do it, there's no better way to bridge an understanding of what we have in Jesus mm. to celebrating a Passover. The, uh, in fact, the video that we just did uh, is going to really, we actually did a communion, Chris, yeah. you and I, and we had two guests with us. I will not name them because I want people to watch. Well, I said them already. Oh, boy. I said I, Carrie and Mary. Oh, all right. Well, that, <laughs> I gave it away already. I gave it away, and of course, that I was paying attention. That must be the, uh, the jet lag. But either way, uh, it's just a wonderful way of understanding what we have in Christ by celebrating a Passover. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And so, again, that's foi.org forward slash Passover. Um, I'm, I'm going to mention this again, but you know, after you get done with the Passover, you can actually dive deeper into the spring feasts of Israel with us here. Remember, the uh, Jew and Gentile podcast is sponsored by FOI Equip, Friends of Israel Equip, where we want to equip you to see the Bible and understand the Bible and read the Bible from a Jewish perspective. And to do that, the best thing to do is know the feasts of Israel. So our good friend Cameron Joyner, who is our field ministries representative in Atlanta is going to be teaching on the spring feasts of Israel, which include Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the Feast of Weeks, um, uh, the Feast of First Fruits. So it's going to be a great time for two weeks. It starts, I believe, on April 21st, but all that information is at foiequip.org. And I just want to ask you, Chris, in our podcast room, uh, as you're talking, the cameras are jiggling up and down. Now, does that does that mean people who are watching it are are getting dizzy? They might be. I don't I don't see any problem with it, but uh, okay. we'll see. I, the... just, I was getting alarmed there. The thing's going up and down and I'm saying, "Oh, I wonder if people are going to get like nauseous." Well, you know, when you listen to the podcast, it's kind of like a roller coaster ride. So we're just <laughs> it, <it's laughs> we're just perfect. taking you for a it's roller perfect. coaster ride. It's perfect. Let me read. Can I read the uh, Exodus chapter 6? We're going to be talking about those four cups uh, and you could introduce them, but let me give you the background of it because um Really, when when Jewish people celebrate the Passover, they are going to have these four cups. It's part of the whole Seder service, and it encompasses almost the whole one. So they don't do it consecutively. They don't take four shots real quick. Mm -hmm. It's over a period of time. But this, this verse is so important, and I think it's helpful to us as we go. Uh, this is what Moses writes in uh, chapter 6 and verse 6. It says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, and now God is speaking here. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Make no mistake about it. God is clear here. Mm -hmm. He's the one doing it. Yeah, Steve, uh, you know, we mentioned this during the Passover Seder that we just did, but I love this moment in the in the story of Exodus because um, Moses had 
already experienced a big fat no from Pharaoh about letting his people go. And I'm sure, I don't know about you, but I'm sure after God spent Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 4, you know, really working on Moses to get him to do this thing. You know, he was really coaching him. No, you got this, buddy. You can get your brother. He can speak on your behalf. You've got this. I'm calling you to this. You're going to let my people, you're going to be the person that helps me out. I got you, you know, put your hand in your coat, pull it back out, look at your staff, all these amazing miracles. And, you know, I'm sure Moses was hyped up, but as he goes before Pharaoh, and then all of a sudden, bupkis, nothing. In fact, the Israelites have to work even harder now. Um, and, and so think about what that does for Mo- Moses was probably deflated. Well, you know, I, I see Moses, he had a midlife crisis, Chris. Mm. At one time, Moses was pretty cocky. He was pretty uh, confident. After all, he was raised under Pharaoh. He uh, was, had the finest things in life. Uh, he came to a realization midlife, about 40 years old, uh, by the way, in our culture, having a midlife crisis for a male uh, around 40 years old is not unusual at mm-hmm. all. You're about there yourself. A couple days away. And so it's it was hard for Moses because he was taken from the top. Once he identified himself as an Israelite, uh, he was 40 years in the desert. God allowed him to take a lot out of that, a lot of that cockiness, it's turned out to be humility. Mm-hmm. And so the 80-year-old man uh, was a lot more humble than the 40-year-old man. So I'm not surprised that even with what God demonstrated to him, uh, he was a shepherd for 40 years. Try- he probably he didn't forget, but he was probably trying to forget those first 40 years. Uh, and so God had to build him back up. I definitely had to build him back up, and I think that's why you know I love these verses here, Exodus 6, 6, and 7, which is, as we're talking about the four cups of the Passover, you know, I always call the four cups, Steve, the fence posts of the Passover. They kind of drive the Passover forward. Um, it's a very constant component of the Passover. You know, all the other elements, you're just taking elements once and you're done, and then you do this and you're done, and you move on, where with the four cups, you know, repeating it builds, itself. It builds upon, it, each one builds on the other. Exactly. And so these cups actually have a name. They're called the I will cups. And I just love it because God's saying, I will do this, Moses. I will, you know, um, the first cup, uh, which we can talk about now, the first cup is called the cup of sanctification. And what does it say there in the text, Steve? It says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Mm. That's a biggie. Mm. That's a big, and you know, we're not talking about a back backstreet nation. We're talking about Egypt, the most powerful nation, and we're talking about Moses, the leader of an enslaved people, and he's standing before Pharaoh, let my people go. Yeah. You got to be kidding me. I mean, it's that that would be like a homeless man going to the White House and demanding something specific. It's not going to happen. Yep, exactly. And, you know, so here is uh, the Israelites, God saying, I'm going to this first cup, the cup of sanctification. I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to I'm going to pull you out and set you apart. And That's, there's that word again, Chris. We've used it in the podcast frequently. We did in the book of Leviticus, sanctification, setting apart. Uh, we used it when we uh, were talking about the co- the covenants, yep. uh, the setting apart. God set apart all his people. Uh, and this is a place where they were set apart. Uh, that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, set apart 
they're then go into bondage. They're still a set apart people, and and now we're we're reading about being set apart again. Yeah, set apart um, to serve God. You know, number one, God had set apart Israel a while ago. God called Abraham, and He said, "I want to use you, Abraham, and your descendants." Um, but and not all his descendants, only specific ones. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the sons of Israel or the sons of Jacob um, will be the chosen ones. Um, but it's interesting because he chooses them. You know, even back, you see the choosing. Even uh, when it, I wish he would have chosen somebody else. <laughs> Isn't that what all our people say? Tevia, right? Tevia yeah, says that's that. That's right. Uh, of all the people, you know, sometimes I wish I wasn't chosen, you yeah, know. That's right. Um, but the but with uh, with the idea even of Jacob and Esau, you know, here is, uh, you know, Isaac has twin sons, you know, uh, and God chooses uh, Jacob over Esau. So there's a choosing. There is a path that God's using. But ultimately, when we get to this moment of God pulling Israel out of Egypt, um, God's giving them a divine purpose. I, I thought maybe, you know, I'll read it, Steve. Let me get my, I got my Bible over here. I, I thought I'd read Exodus chapter 19 because it, I think it gives the divine purpose um, of what God is calling Israel to be. It says this, uh, start in chapter 19 of Exodus, starting in verse 5. Now, if you fully obey, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the nations... You will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine, which I love that God says that. Everything is mine, in Israel, but I'm choosing you. Uh, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God is calling Israel to a divine purpose. So he's setting them apart. And if you want what a perfect image of what sanctification looks like, it looks like Israel being pulled out of the world at that time and set apart for a purpose given by God. That's that word sanctification again. And by the way, Chris, as believers in the Lord Jesus, we don't talk about it too much, but we're sanctified. Yeah. We're set apart. We're, in fact, we are to be priests as well. We're, he is our high priest, but we can come to him as priests and offer sacrifices, the number one, us, yes, ourselves. Exactly. Romans chapter 12. Yeah, that, I think in Hebrews it even talks about the fact that Christ has been shed, you know, was died outside of the the gates that he might, by, by his blood, he might sanctify us. And so we've been sanctified by his blood. We've been set apart uh, for service to him. So that first cup, the cup of sanctification. But then there's a second cup, Steve, the cup of deliverance. Yep. Uh, and let me read uh, reread that again. Uh, as I'm here, um, uh, I will rescue you from their bondage. I will rescue you mm. from their bondage. So we are rescued. The children of Israel were rescued uh, as God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, confronting Pharaoh, uh, ultimately rescued his people. Uh, and th- during the Passover Seder, we are constantly remembering that rescue. Uh, It isn't quite like the third cup, which we'll talk about, but rescuing is very important. We were in bondage. We were uh, no hope. We were uh, feeling alone. Yeah. Uh, But God rescued us. Yeah. You know, uh, the deliverance cup that I will deliver you. And, you know, I think about the fact that Israel, when they're taking, or when Jewish people are taking this cup, you know, they're supposed to be remembering God sanctifying them, setting them apart for a purpose. Uh, and in the deliverance component, which is a very important p- component to the Passover story. 
But then there's also, you know, for us Christians, you know, we've been delivered by the blood of the Lamb. It's great news uh, to be delivered. I, you know, I always think, too, sometimes we forget we're delivered, I feel like. Sometimes I feel like we forget that we are a, 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 we've been delivered by God. You know, we've been set free. That's a big concept, freedom in Christ, that we've been set free to serve him. Um, and sometimes I think as Christians, and I know I'm guilty of this, you can shackle yourself, you know, you think you're still shackled, um, and you can confuse yourself, but you've been set free. You know, when you realize that you've been forgiven and set free, it does radically change your mind about how you live your life for Christ. There is a stress in the Christian life, and Paul talked about it. He said, that which I do, I shouldn't do, and that which I shouldn't do, I do. Mm. Oh, wicked man that I am. And there's debate amongst uh, scholars as to, was Paul talking about his unsaved point or being saved? And from my point of view, I believe he was a saved man, but I believe it's a constant wrestling with the old man. So I guess the next thing, though, is when when we're, we're moving, so we had the cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, those are taken during the Passover Seder. Before we move to the third cup, is are these cups that Jesus would have taken at the Passover? 100% they are. Uh, we know that the, uh, the Talmud was being written uh, during this time. In fact, uh, in the Gospels you read where Jesus will say, you have heard that, mm-hmm. but I say unto you. That's very Talmudic. That's, that's what rabbis did. Uh, they talked about what one rabbi would say, but then he would say this. And, of course, Jesus is the final authority. And you yourself read in one of the uh, Mishnah. <laughs> it's the from the Mishnah. <laughs> it's getting late for you. You're it's still get, Israel time. That's right. That's right. Uh, that indeed it it is the cups were there. Yeah, we know that they were there. Yeah. Um. There's actually a passage in in the, the midrash, and exactly that talks about the very fact that there were four cups, and a lot of those texts from the Talmud and from the Mishnah. I always like to remind people they might have been codified, which means they were placed in a book and given to people then, or to be read from a book. They were codified around 200 A.D., and then I believe the Talmud 500 A.D. But by the time, but the, all those writings, though, they come from a much earlier uh, source. So they were even being written as far back as the exile that goes back to 586 BC. So, yeah, by the time those are written, uh, Jesus would have been drinking four cups because it would have been part of the culture and the, and the tradition of Passover at that time. And it's significant because deliberately he was taking what they knew about the Passover uh, with taking of cups and instituting something else. It, Passover is a remembrance, and we still need to remember redemption uh, out of Egypt. But what he wanted them to remember, and what you and I and uh, the Church of Jesus Christ remembers, uh, we call it communion, the Eucharist, was established through the Passover. That's right. It's a great segue. It's a great bridge that Jesus used. You know, I always like to tell people, we're the only—I think English speakers are the only people who call Easter Easter, like Resurrection Day Easter. Um, I, if you uh, look at Spanish, for instance, or a lot of the Latin languages, you know, it, it's Pascal is the name for Easter, and that's Passover, you know. So a Passover is actually the term that's used for Easter in most other languages. We're the only ones that call it Easter because I believe the King James Bible translated at some point in Acts translated East, uh, Passover as Easter, um, and I don't want to get into that debate. But still, Passover plays such an important role in the celebration of 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It was the Last Supper, and that's where this third cup comes into play. So if there are four cups, and we're saying Jesus would have taken those four cups, then that one of those cups appears in the past in the in the story of the upper room and the last supper and that of course is the cup of redemption chris and that's where he took we're redeemed from a, a jewish point of view at at the seder uh he redeems us with an outstretched arm with a mighty arm taken out of bondage and now jesus wanted them to remember that I will redeem you. Exactly. And that's what he says here. He says, um, I'll just take you to that section in in um, Matthew chapter 26, where the gospel writers focus in on this one moment of the Passover. And he says that while they were eating, so just as they were finishing up dinner, Jesus took bread, which was very common. It would have been matzah. He didn't take rye bread. No he rye. Didn't ta- he didn't take challah. He took unleavened bread, matzah. Very uh, dry bread brittle bread that breaks easy. No leaven. No leaven. They had to leave Egypt in haste. That was the whole point, and that's how they remember it. And, and there was no leaven in him. That's right. An un, No leaven has the, uh, the, the, leaven is symbolism for sin in the Bible. Not just from a Christian point of view, but the rabbis say that it represents the evil inclination of your heart. That's sin, yep. Chris. And so there's no leaven in the bread. That's why I, it upsets me sometimes. I've been to churches some, t- some of them decide to use regular bread. And I, I, how could this remember me? Remember, this is my body. Well, he had no sin. My body full of leaven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, look, I don't fight it, but no. it's, it's a frustrating thing. But I, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no, no. That's good. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, unleavened bread, and he had given thanks uh, and he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And we were saying those prayers all today during the Passover. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe who created the fruits of the earth. Uh, That's a prayer that Jesus would have probably said it. He broke it, and he gave his disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body. This is my question, Steve. I'm sure that the disciples would have been taking Passover their entire lives. You know, let's imagine they're around the same age as Jesus. Let's just say they're in their 30s at this point. 30 years they've been taking Passover. 30 years they've been doing the same traditions over and over again. And now all of a sudden Jesus is taking a piece of bread, unleavened bread from the Passover and saying, take and eat, this is my body. What do you think, you know, it, they're, what's going on, What their faces we can't see in the text. We can't get a feel for their emotions of what they're hearing. But what do you think their response is when Jesus twisted the symbolism a little bit? Well, you know, they had been with him three years. It's approaching three years. It's going to be almost complete. Uh and he is saying, this is my body. They're trying to decipher all the teachings that they heard, all the miracles that he did, uh, and they know it's not literally his body. So I think there was great confusion. Yeah. And I think to back up that confusion, they they rejected him. Everyone, including Peter, denying him. Uh, at that moment, I think they were wondering, what did I get into? <laughs> yeah, I bet they did. You're thinking about, who's this guy just changing all of the symbolism on us, altering the way things, because not only is he going to change the symbolism of the bread here, but he's even going to change the symbolism and the meaning of the cup, the cup of redemption. Big time. Uh, To say that this is the blood of of the new covenant which is shed for you. It hadn't happened yet. Remember, they were hoping that he'd be the Messiah that come in victory. The kingdom is coming. We're going to overthrow the Romans. And they were entirely wrong. I think there was great confusion and stress. 
for them. A lot of stress, and that's why he goes on, and he did, then he takes the cup, it says, uh, after he gives the bread, and he takes the cup. This cup would have been the third cup, um, the cup of redemption. And he says, uh, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of, you, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, redemption, which is just a perfect link to um, the the symbolism of the cup for them at that moment. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to re- see you, disciples. I'm sure you're used to the idea of being redeemed, Israel being redeemed out of Egypt. Uh, I'm going to redeem you from your sins. This is the same person that just a, maybe an hour or two before washed their feet. Yes. It's such a contrast to the humility that he had and that he was, but to, hey, I'm going to accomplish it. It's going to happen through me, and you got to remember this cup and apply it to me. I, wow. We don't have a lot of time, but Steve, there is that phrase that Jesus uses about himself over and over again, the son of man, that he's the son of man. Um, and, you know, that phrase is actually one of the most intense messianic phrases that goes back to Daniel chapter 7, where God gives authority, that there's this guy who looks like a man. That's what Daniel sees, a human that, that is able, that's what son of man means, human. He sees a human that's riding on clouds and approaches the ancient of days. So that means this human can just walk right into the presence of God. And when he walks right into the presence of God, God actually bestows on him all authority, power, dominion um, over every nation, tribe, tongue, language, everybody. And so there's this guy called the son of man, a messianic figure called the son of man, who God gives all authority and power to, to rule uh, uh, and have dominion over the whole earth. Wasn't he the same man who was in the fire for the three friends of, of uh, Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Uh, and, and Nebuchadnezzar's look and said, man, who who is that? The, <laughs> who looks like the son of of man. That he looks like a human. That's right. And he's standing there in the fire. Fire's not doing anything. Nothing. To him. Exactly. But then it's funny because then you come to um the gospels and here Jesus uses the same phrase. So we know it's Jesus that was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know it's Jesus who God gives all authority, power, and dominion to. And yet here is Jesus who says, The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, or that the Son of Man would stoop down and clean the feet of the disciples, or that the Son of Man would give his life. Like these phrases, this phrase that carried so much power and authority and dominion and uh, you know uh, majesty, and yet Jesus, like you said, in his humility, uh, says your understanding of the Son of Man isn't probably in the right place. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. And they were looking for a Messiah that would come in power and authority. They were looking to overthrow the Romans, and he gave them a curveball. He gave them a curveball. He washed He gave me a curveball. I remember way back. The image that many Jewish people have, especially at Passover, is they're looking for the Messiah to come because, Chris, I don't want to tell you the rest of the story, (laughs) but I will. What do we say at the end of of the whole Seder service? Next year in Jerusalem. How are we going to get there? It's got to be through the power of the Messiah. And here's the Messiah saying, I came to serve. That's right. Their heads were, if I can use the modern expression, exploding because they the stress of what they expected and what was happening was was really made them confused. It made them very confused. But that's the that's the Messiah that we serve, Steve, which is, is always so humbling, is that um he washed Peter's feet. 
and he was the one that God gave all power and authority to. Even, even he calls himself that, the son of man, and yet he stooped down to our level. That's just a, the most uh, beautiful thing that you can think of. It's God's grace and mercy uh, poured out for us. So, and, you know, don't we get confused sometimes? Think about it. We sometimes don't approach him in prayer. We don't approach him or acknowledge him because we think, oh, you know, I'm I'm just— I'm just a, you know, not, you don't notice what I'm doing. Oh, he notices yep. everything. And not just notices, he cares. He cares, that's he right. He cares for us. And I think sometimes that's too much for us. I know. You know, it comes across right here in that third cup, the cup of redemption, that it was his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins for the many. That means he cares. He didn't have to come to die on the cross for our sins, but nope. he did it because he cares about us. So That's a, It's amazing. Great reminder. Yep, cup of redemption. So what about that fourth cup? Why don't you take it? I'll let you go because uh, and, and, and this is, again, we're talking about the four I will cups of the Passover, and we've reached our last one. The Verse 7 says this, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So this fourth cup is, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. They were That's what they were expecting, except something happened at this last supper, we call it. Jesus had the cup and set it down. Yeah, th- that's a really good way to put it, the illustration there. Um, so after he takes the third cup, the cup of redemption— and he says, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 29 in Matthew chapter 26, he says, I tell you, I will not drink from this. That's why this is important. This cup of wine, this fruit of the vine, as it says, from now on until the day when I drink it with you new in my father's kingdom. Jesus said, I'm not taking this last cup. He took the cup of sanctification, first one cup of deliverance, the second one, cup of redemption, the third one. And then he, like you said, he puts down the third, the fourth cup, the cup of acceptance. And says, not now. There not- will be a future time. And what a t- and by the way, you and I, and, and hopefully all our listeners, uh, when we go to church uh, and worship, uh, whether it's once a month, once a week, once a year, once a quarter, we take communion. We do this until... He comes. That's right. That's the reason we do it. We do it until, and we remember. Just like the Passover is a remembrance, we remember the Passover lamb. You know, uh, we were talking about this during the Passover that we had just done a couple hours ago, um, that, you know, the idea of him not taking the cup, the cup of acceptance, is because his people had rejected him. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's what's in the title of the I will cup. And yet his people had rejected him. But that's the beauty of what Jesus does. Even Jesus says there's a future for Israel because instead of him going, you know what? These people, all throughout the Bible, they disobey me. All throughout the Old Testament, they abandon me. They're stiff-necked. They're hard-hearted. I'm done with them. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus actually says, I'm not drinking this cup now, this cup of acceptance, but I will drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom, which means, when I look at it, Jesus isn't done with Israel. And you know what else it means? Jesus isn't done with me either. Amen. That's a great promise. So there's hope in the cup of acceptance. And I always love this as believers, we can take it as well because we've been accepted by God. So those are the four cups, Steve. Hey, I'm glad we did them. I'm really glad we did them. It's a postponement of uh, what we're going to do next week 
Which what are we doing next week? I, I think we're going to start a series on. Are we going to start a series on the temple? I believe that's what we agreed upon. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to talk about the temple. You just did a bunch of messages on the third temple. I did. Uh, and what I think we'll do uh, next week, Lord willing, is we'll review starting with the tabernacle. You know, God's presence was in the tabernacle well, even before the tabernacle was built. Uh, as we just acknowledged in the Passover, he led the Israelites by day in a cloud, a pillar cloud, and by night, a fire. And his presence was then locked in in a tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Then Solomon built him a temple. And I'm not going to go any further because that's next week. We'll right. talk about it. I'm just giving the first two. But we're going to follow that all the way through. Uh, and there were times that they had the house for God without his presence. Yes. That's really interesting. Yeah, and that's really interesting, and that's why it's going to be good because I think a lot of people have a quest- questions as well as to whether is there still a need for a temple. What's You know, now that Jesus said, you know, there's no, you know, the, after three days, what did he say, Steve? There'll be no more need. There'll be a raise up a new temple in three days. You know, so do we need a temple still? Was Jesus still temple-focused? These are all great questions that we can ask ourselves. Uh, we'll handle it next week. <laughs> That's right. That's all next week. But, Steve, why don't we find out what's going on in the news? Well, there's a couple of news items, Chris, uh, and I'll take the first ones from the Times of Israel. And this is modern Israeli politics, Chris. The headline reads, Bennett's—that's, of course, Prime Minister Bennett— Bennett's coalition has lost its majority— it was barely it barely had a majority, Chris, and now uh, net the question is could Netanyahu's Likud now regain power? Uh, it seems that uh, from the party Yamina, uh, Adit Silman, that's a gal, uh, had just pulled out, and the reason she pulled out and Chris, why don't you explain what by pulling out? All that means is she's saying I'm no longer in the coalition. Uh, why do they need a coalition? There's 120 seats in the Knesset. Why don't you explain that? Yeah, so in the Israeli political world, you have the coalition government and then you have the opposition government. There's 120 seats, which is actually goes back to the days of uh, the Great Council. It's a biblical thing. Um, But there's 120 seats of representation in the Knesset, Israel's government. All all you need is 61 seats to be filled by a coalition government in and order ha- have to have they power. ever had 61 seats well, at they, any time? Yeah, they have 61 they just had 61 seats, but the one left, that's the thing. Well, but they've never had 61 from one party. Oh yeah, from one party, that's right. No, that's that's, that's how you get the coalition. You you got to do backdoor dealings, that's right, right, Chris? There are the, the way, you know, we work things out by representation through states. They don't because Israel's so small. The representation actually comes by party. So there are a lot of parties in Israel in order to do the type of represent. You know, some one party might represent you know the pensioners, um, and the pensioners you know want to get that guy in government because they know the pensioners are gonna you know get maybe more money out of it. You know, so it, it all depends on how many you can have a lot of parties in in the Knesset. and they do have. In fact, the uh, ultra orthodox have a small minority. But they've always been part of a coalition to get their particular interests satisfied. That's right. In fact, that's why if you travel to Israel, there's all these kosher laws for the whole country, uh, Sabbath laws, all, n- not because Israelis are very religious as a majority, but because the government, in order to function, woos them uh, and allows them and say, okay, you will give you that 
if if you vote the way we want you to vote. That's right. And so the coalition actually works where you'll never I don't think there's ever been one party that's had 61 seats. Never. 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 So that what they have to do is they have to work with other parties to agree with them. And if they it's can let's make a deal. 100%. Chris. And you do that by giving people certain political position, uh, you know, powers of uh position and you know maybe you're the minister of finance and you're the minister of transport if you come over here i'll make you the financial guy or the 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 the, uh you know minister over uh international affairs all that stuff but chris you know in the united states the party that wins gets all those kinds of jobs but in israel you could have the prime minister of one party and because he needs that coalition He'll say he'll give it to somebody who disagrees with him on everything. He said, "Okay, you take transportation. That's right. Or you take uh, Ministry of Defense. And they might not be a member of his own party. Exactly. And usually that's the best tool for gaining power and forming a coalition government. The thing that's funny about the the current coalition government, Steve, is that it is a, 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 a combination of parties that should never be together. Um, it This is... You have an Islamist who has – there's never been a Muslim party in the coalition government. They're always in opposition. They always prefer to be in opposition, so they always can be the opposition against the Israeli government. This time, though, you have an is you know a Muslim party in the coalition government. You have moderates in the coalition government. You have left-leaning, but then you also have a prime minister who is incredibly conservative. He's, a, he's to the right. Yep, and, a, and Yamina, his party, is a very conservative. So, But here's the point. It was a very fragile government because instead of having of 120 seats, maybe 70 seats or 80 seats uh, in, in the coalition government, they only had 61. That means there was only one person holding one person helped that whole government together. Anna Deet is pulling out. And she left. And she's leaving. Well, and, she, and by leaving, that means she's not leaving government. No, She's no. just going to the other side of the parliament building to the opposition party. Well, in the article, uh, Chris, and I know you're going to include this uh, so people can access this article, it says, building a new right-wing coalition without election is the option declared uh, by Silman. That's what she wants to happen. And it quotes her here, I will continue to try to persuade my friends to return home and form a right-wing government, she said in a resignation letter. I know I am not the only one who feels this way. Another government can be formed in this Knesset. So she's believing that by pulling out, she doesn't want another election. She just wants a reforming of the government. And I think that's got to be decided by the president, uh, which is an honorary uh, position but is involved in the elections. It's going to be confusing, and I think it's going to make headlines uh, in the next several weeks. Is she in Yamina? That's the party she's in. Isn't that what's interesting, too? So Yamina party is the party of the prime minister. So Only seven seats. Only seven seats. He was given that position so that they could beat Netanyahu. But anyway... The, this the guy that is the prime minister you'd think everyone would be behind him for the coalition government one of his people defected and said nope can't do this anymore go into the other side that means you can still be in his party but you're sitting on the other side and you're saying i disagree with you which is just amazing uh, unlike the united states where people are usually lifelong whatever it is democrat republican independent here in israel there are there are, except for a few, labor used to be the number one party for years in the early establishment of the nation of Israel. Then it shifted to Likud. But there have been multiple parties and people who have jumped from one party to another party. 
But the reason is basically there's two views. There's the right wing or the conservative wing, which has, you know, uh, a variance of how far to the right they are, and then the left as Mm. well. And the cause has become more important than the party. Yeah. And what Adit is doing here is saying right wing uh, ideology is the number one thing. My Yamina party is secondary to the idea of I see a more liberal government than what I want. And that's why she pulled out. All right. So, Steve, this is the big question because this could upset everything. I know her intentions are that we don't want to go to elections again, but they could go to elections again in Israel. They're going to be so upset if they do. The people don't want it. No, Well, they had four elections, I think, in two years or three years, which has just never happened before. But the question is, does Netanyahu still have the sway and the political prowess to be able to take the prime minister seat again. Well, if America's Christian community had a say, he would win in a heartbeat. <laughs> That's uh, right. <laughs> but but the Israelis are the ones that have to vote, and quite frankly, uh, the main reason he lost, he didn't really. They he, they had thirty some seats that Likud won. He over the overwhelming majority uh, of the seats were won by Likud, not sixty one, but they had the most. The idea, there is Netanyahu overload on the part of so many of Israelis. And so I'm not a prognosticator. I just know it's possible that Netanyahu could win, but it's it's a tough hole for him. Yeah, he still has a lot of political uh, cachet in Israel. He does. I don't know if he has enough. You know, and this is where Americans, I think their brains start to fry politically because we're used to the fact that that the moment you're done with president, you ride off into the sunset, sayonara. That is not Israeli politics. And Netanyahu is still the leader of the opposition party. You know, he's still got a lot of votes. He's still in the Knesset. You still, you know, uh, you know, screaming from the other side this time. Um, so he's not gone. He's there. I don't he's think just... there's a camera that Netanyahu shied away from. <laughs> That's good. That is real good. No, there's a good chance he could, you know, throw his hat. In... I know he'll throw his hat in the ring again. The question is, will the people elect him? That's the big question. Well, the second uh, one is comes from the Jerusalem Post. And Chris, this is kind of a frustrating, sad, makes me angry, sad. Uh, it says this. Uh, UNHRC approves four anti-Israel resolution and calls for limited arms embargo. Why don't you explain to us the United Nations Human Rights Council has four times put resolutions against Israel. And Chris, how many times have they given this United Nations uh, Human Human Rights Council? (laughs) There's a war in the Ukraine. And Israel gets four. I can hear. You, like, I can hear you already. You're feeling the same way I'm feeling. Four, four negative votes. If, his, you, if will. you can't let's, see Steve right now, his blood is boiling. Let's I can concentrate see it. on how horrible Israel is four times. But what are we going to do for Russia? Yep. So Israel, four human rights anti-human or the human rights resolutions against Israel. Guess how many with Russia? One. One. Unless that one. one is as big as the state of Texas, uh, this makes no sense. They are they are butchering people in the streets of Ukraine, and they get one resolution. Israel, I just got back from Israel. People were, 
I don't know. It looked pretty good to me. That, well, you know, they are claiming all of these uh, human rights atrocities. But if I remember correctly, the Palestinian community is not shrinking. It is growing right now. Um, and Israel, I don't think, has any intent to uh, create any uh, genocidal activities toward the Palestinian people. In fact, I think that they are doing their best to help them despite their differences. But, Steve, there are even other countries on that list. It's Russia got has one. You know, but then there's others that are, you know, like North Korea won. You know, it's just it's mind boggling to me when you see I think some of them were listed there in Jerusalem Post. Listen to what the ambassador uh, to Israel, Ambassador Marie Vallone Shahar, said the council was an echo chamber of fantasy and hatred against Israel out of the four resolution texts. The accountability resolution, which spoke of the arms embargo, is considered to be the most contentious. It was approved thirty-seven to three. Oh, it's not even close. I, it's it's a slant, and, and the countries that are condemning Israel should be condemned left and right all the time. They shouldn't even be allowed in the United Nations. I did read just today that I think the UNHRC moved to have Russia removed from the Human Rights Council. I love that they're well, thinking, but Russia gets to vote on that. I know. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, they're not going to vote themselves out. (laughs) No, this one was one of those ones where you're reading and you're going, you've got to be. It just shows how out of touch uh, the United Nations Human Rights Council is when it comes to what's going on in the world, that they would they would uh, point the finger at Israel four times. And Israel's actually technically done nothing wrong. And then once Russia, who, like you said, Steve, it's a war. Putin is a war criminal. He's a war criminal. 100%. What he did in Bukka is absolutely out of control. We're talking about mass graves, killing people in the streets uh, on a mass level. And one human rights. Well, you know, the only good issue. thing about this is, and I don't know if they even thought about it, This, uh, these resolutions passed on April 1st. April Fool's oh, Day. The whole thing is a joke. <laughs> That's a good, it's not a real joke, but you're no, saying the whole thing is a joke. It's yes. a joke passed. It literal, it's a literal thing. It happened. It was a, uh, voted on April 1st. And those of us who know April Fool's Day... Uh, that's why I'm saying sarcastically, it's a joke. It is a joke. Here's another thing that's interesting that's kind of in relationship to Russia, another news article, again, that you can get on your show notes on the podcast or on YouTube if you're watching, um, is that, uh, you know, one of the big issues with the war that we're seeing right now is all over the uh, influence that Russia has with energy in the world, that Russia is the one of the leading suppliers of energy to Europe uh, and you know, even we were taking we Russian. Were, that's right. We were importing Russian oil during the time they were aggressive against Ukraine. Exactly. And so how are they able to fund a war like this, especially after we've sanctioned them so much? It's because we keep putting money in their pocket because they keep pumping gas and and, and natural uh, and oil. Um, but there are ways to get around this, which means America could step up and begin to send natural gas, liquefied natural gas over to Europe to help out. Um, but then there's another one. You know, people forgot about this, but Israel found a massive, massive uh, uh, field of energy in the Mediterranean. And now they're, they finally, through many, many years, I think, of going back and forth in the government, they were able to create the infrastructure to be able to mine or, or drill this gas and all of this energy that they've been able to find. Uh, it's huge. And now they're saying Israel could supply the energy 
from that they're getting out of the Mediterranean over to Europe. They call it the East Med Pipeline, that they would be a, a resource for Europe since Europe doesn't want to get its own natural gas. Uh, but here's what the, the Biden administration had to say about it. She, uh, The undersecretary put a kibosh on it and said that the East Med Pipeline that would send Israeli gas to Europe is not viable. So she snuck into this meeting between Greece and Cyprus and Israel to talk about this East Med pipeline. She comes in and says, nope, not going to happen. And here's the reason why, Steve. She writes, and frankly, here's the reason why. We don't have 10 years for this pipeline to be built. But in 10 years from now, what we want is a far, far more green and far, far more diverse energy source. So what we're looking for within the hydrocarbon context are options that can get us uh, more gas, more oil for a short transition period. But what she's saying is no to this thing because in 10 years, we don't want to be looking at natural gas. We want green. That's right, Chris. You're going to have Israeli drivers get in a car and windmills are going to push them along the road. (laughs) That's what what she's thinking. It's it's crazy. I'm all about new technology, but I also think... If we want to prevent Russia from be, from continuing this problem, we're going to have to be uh, grown-ups about how we uh, manage the situation and hoping for green technology. What a world, Chris. Happen. What a world we're living in. I think it's amazing. All right, Steve. So here it is. So you got to give me – that's right. Give me the music first. All right. Here we go. Ready for the music? All right, Chris. Okay. You are Yiddish the one word of the day. that picked out the Yiddish word for the day. I had nothing to do with it. I came in – here to our podcast room and said, Chris, what is the Yiddish word for the day? Okay. And it is? Yiddish word of the day is nishkit. 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 What in the world does nishkit mean? It means not good. What is not good? <laughs> the reason I chose that is word. Is anything good? That Talk about that for a moment. Is anything good? Is, is anything okay? That's right. The greeting, we always joke. You say, hey, how are things going? Is everything okay? <laughs> Jewish people don't say that. They say, hey, is anything okay today? That's right. <laughs> well, listen, nishkit means not good. And the reason I chose this is because what Bennett, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, is going through right now is not good. He's, it's nishkit. It's nishkit because his government is going to probably be falling apart with one person from his own party leaving. It could upset the entire government which could potentially send the people into elections. So we'll have to wait and see. But that's another, another word for nishkit or another definition. You know, in uh, foiequip.org, that's our website, it's nishkit if people don't register. Oh, it's nishkit if people don't go to FOI Equip we and see what's available. We want them to go to foiequip.org oh, because right. if they do, things will be underbar. Is that is that Yiddish? <laughs> no, that's Swedish. <laughs> Okay, so we want you to be sure to go to FOI Equip, um, and you know what? There you can find out all the information you want about joining one of our classes. Uh, We've got some good ones coming up. Chris, I'm really excited about the spring feast. I think... Cameron's going to do a great job. Yep. If you want to sign up for Cameron's class, which starts, I believe, on April 21st, 7 p.m., live online. It's a Zoom teaching class. We have people from all around the world, Steve, that come and join our classes. We want to encourage you to go to foiequip.org. Hey, and just a fresh reminder as we're ending our Jew and Gentile podcast is that this whole podcast, Steve, the whole thing is sponsored by FOI Equip. We couldn't do it without them. Look at all this equipment we got. I know. We're moving up in the world, and thanks to FOI Equip. Hey, 
Be sure to visit our website, sign up for our classes, uh, get our newsletter, get on board with all that we're doing here with the Friends of Israel equipped through our Jew and Gentile podcast. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're gonna ha- we'll be back again next week. Um, we're hoping that you have a fantastic Passover, a fantastic uh, Resurrection Day as all that's coming up. And you know what I'm most thankful for, Steve? You're back from Israel. I'm back, baby. You're back. Hey, everybody, we'll see you next week.